Welcome to Take a Moment. I'm Mari Yamaguchi. And I am Nathan Bennett. Mari and I were fortunate enough to have another conversation with our friend, Dr. Woody Myers. He was a guest on Take a Moment about six or seven months ago with his amazing wife, Stacy. And today he is running for governor of the state of Indiana. And he shared a lot of perspectives from his position of being not only a leader, but a physician. Yes, I can't believe he agreed to come back on the I know, hot we didn't seat. scare him away. We didn't. So Dr. Woody Myers, a little bit of a refresher. He was appointed to serve as Indiana's state health commissioner. He was actually one of the youngest uh, to serve in that role. And I think what makes it unique and interesting with the conversation that we had with him was that he has really gone through another health crisis prior to this and a lot of lessons learned in his leadership then and that can translate to what we're going through today as well so it was a reassuring conversation as well for our research uh, for a conversation with dr myers mari and i reviewed a clip from an oprah show from the 80s and dr myers was a guest at that time during the hiv aids outbreak and it was really, really interesting to see, one, how the audience responded. They were afraid. A lot of them were angry because there was uh, suspicion and misinformation that they had heard from a lot of different sources that was causing them a lot of panic. And Dr. Myers tried to, one, instill them with uh, facts, but he also responded to them very calm, very cool. And it was nice to see that kind of leadership under pressure. Today, you can hear in his voice, passion for people over politics. And it's really exciting to hear what he has planned for the future. And one of the things that we talk about for the future is the concept of hope. And I think that's something that we can all really latch onto, but also look forward to for the future. Uh, some of the things that we also talked about were getting his insights for what his first 100 days could potentially look like should he get elected into the office of governor for the state of Indiana. And it's really interesting in that conversation how when we had asked him back six, seven months ago, what that would look like today. So it was a great lesson on leadership, also a hope-filled message as well too. So I hope you take a moment and listen with us. I remember our conversation with you about seven, eight months ago, I guess now, which seems crazy because time is a little uh, is a little strange nowadays. But so much has happened since then, and I wonder, you know, your campaign is fully in effect. Obviously, the way the world is right now. Can you give us a sense of what has changed in your life since we saw you seven months ago? Well, especially in the past two months or so, uh, things have dramatically changed with respect to the campaign. And if you Google campaigning during a global pandemic, you don't get a lot of positive uh, responses that, uh, that are useful. And this is not something that's uh, been done before. There was no primer. There was no class. No there was no, yeah, no best practices for how to no, campaign no, during no a, best practices, a pandemic. No journal articles that you could read. Uh, There's nothing. going to be. There's going to be. Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. But now. There, there are going to be movies and books and all kinds Absolutely. of things come out of this. But right now, uh, we, we are uh, doing our best to uh, stay in as close touch with our supporters as possible. We're utilizing the, the old-fashioned telephone. We, we're still actually using snail mail on occasion. 
Well, we've uh, really uh, warmed up to the online resources, the Zoom chats, BlueJean, mm-hmm. Skype, FaceTime, all the others as well. Uh, and we've utilized those. Uh, I mean, there have been days where I've done four or five Zooms. I, I know that uh, that's not the, the most desirable from a campaign standpoint. I mean, you like to be able to walk across the room and shake a hand and look someone in the eye. And that's a lot harder to do, of course, virtually. But I, I just had to adjust. We And we are adjusting. Uh, we've had to change our fundraising strategy to an online approach until we're able to get out again. But we're still communicating. Uh, we're We're still issuing press releases. We're still responding to the media. I'm still doing podcasts. I'm still doing radio (laughs) interviews. We're doing everything that we can, the best we can, given the circumstances. And I think that uh, when things open up, should they open up uh, this summer, we'll get back on the road and uh, we'll make our trek across the state once again. And, uh, you know, I was up to 36 counties uh, in Indiana that I'd visited prior to this. And of course, any candidate statewide in Indiana wants to be able to say they got to all 92 counties. So I'm going to have to speed it up once we get back out on the road, because I would like to say that as well. On that note, how do you maintain that balance for creating the vision for what the future can be, but still being able to guide and shepherd people through what's really top of mind for them? Like right now for them, it might be, I just lost my job. How do I How do I get back and get a job and sustain my family? Or how is this global crisis going to affect me? How do you kind of navigate both of that, but then also be able to paint a picture for the future? Well, what what COVID-19 has done, what the novel coronavirus has done, it's exposed all of the the pre-existing problems that we've had as a state explicitly. And now it's, it's very clear to everyone who cares to take a real good look that the problems that we've been talking about in the education system are now just uh, out there for everyone to see. Just as an example, the assumption that you could immediately pivot from classroom to online learning meant that the people making that assumption knew that that everyone had a computer at home that they could utilize, everyone had Wi-Fi, everyone had great reception, school districts all had online lesson plans ready to go. All of that was just wrong. It was just false. And the people that made that decision didn't think it through. And we weren't prepared. Now, our education system was already suffering for so many reasons, teacher salaries and harmful testing in some cases. And so all of that, in addition to now this immediate 180 pivot to online learning has just made it just even more evident that we've got problems that we have not fully addressed and we need to address. And you you couple the educational issues with the uh, the clear-cut public health infrastructure issues that are just naked. The fact that we haven't invested in our public health infrastructure in Indiana uh, anywhere near to the level that we should have. We're like 47th, I think, or 46th in the nation in terms of the dollars that we, we spend per capita on public health infrastructure meant that we couldn't do testing programs. We couldn't do the level of contact tracing that we needed to do. We couldn't offer the diagnostic testing and and soon the antibody testing that we need for the virus, that public health officials couldn't get around to the meatpacking plants, to the nursing homes, to the prisons and the jails and do the detailed work that needed to be done in order to minimize morbidity and mortality. And so we had to bring in an outside contractor uh, to do that. And that contractor is going to take weeks to get set up. And it'll cost us ultimately a lot more than if we had just done it right the first time when we here in the state. And It's just maddening to me that we didn't understand that these uh, opportunities are there for a reason. uh, And we should have followed in the example of so many other states 
that of course regular old old fashioned healthcare. I mean, the, the worry that, that that was engendered in those communities uh, was frightening. And I heard a lot of that uh, from people around the state. COVID nineteen has exposed our issues and in, in, in so much more stark relief. It's caused me to want to double down and, and make sure that I continue to try to do my best to communicate my passion towards uh, fixing these fixable problems here in the state of Indiana. It's interesting you make the same point. We had a culture design strategist on a couple of weeks ago, and he basically made the same comment that, you know, at times of crisis is when the tides come down and you are exposed with a lot of your bad practices. And there's no better time than now, right, to motivate for change. You have a unique perspective with a lens from coming from a medical professional background. What are some of the challenges in dealing with a global pandemic from an epidemiology standpoint, but then also from tackling it from a human reaction standpoint? There are many, many, and I'll, I'll just highlight a few. This emphasis that we've heard now for the last two months on testing, why is that so important? Well, first of all, there's two different kinds of tests. I, I want to make sure that all the listeners understand the diagnostic test is the one where you put the nasal swab in and it tells you, do I have the virus in my body today in a way that's detectable? And then the antibody tests, which are coming and more and more are being approved all the time. Did I have the virus in my body and did I create an immune response to it? In many cases, a good antibody response implies that you have some level of protection from being reinfected. It also implies that you're not going to be the one to infect other people because of some lag in terms of your exposure and then infection yourself because you now have antibodies to protect. And what that means, of course, is that we really need to double down and get to a vaccine because that means that everybody can create a response. But that's what vaccines do. They, they cause your body to create a response such that if you do get infected, you're able to fight it off and you never even know it uh, most of the time. So that the testing is very important, not just for individual health, so that you and your doctor can know what your status is and, and whether or not some of the symptoms that you might have are explainable by this particular disease and or the residual from this disease, because we learn every day about more and more complications of the virus. We know that children do get infected, that children now do suffer, some of them from COVID-related syndromes that are possibly related to the explosion of the cytokine reaction in the body. We know that adults, especially those of us over 60 with chronic illnesses, particularly those illnesses that affect the heart and the lungs, uh, are at very high risk of morbidity. So these are the things that you and your physician are going to want to know in order to take advantage of the information that is provided by the two different tests. But there's also a public health reason for doing much more testing, and that's because it allows public health officials to concentrate their energy and and their effectiveness. It's like knowing where the battle should be. A good example is that uh, if if you get one case in a nursing home, then there's high likelihood that there are other undetected cases. And to be able to swarm in and do all the testing to determine the prevalence in the nursing home will allow you to take steps right then, right there, that could isolate those that have been infected from those that have not, could limit your visitation policy, you would test your staff more intensely. Those are the kinds of steps that you would take in order to focus your resources better in order to prevent unnecessary morbidity, i.e. illness or death. It's hard to target your resources when there's 6.6 million Hoosiers. Uh, you, you can't go out and immediately test everybody. Uh, you've got to figure out where to put your energy, where to put your time. 
where to put your attention. And so having prevalence studies, knowing that, for instance, Cass County, where the, uh, the meat, meat processing plant was found to have so many people that were infected, you can almost guarantee that their families have been infected, that the members of the community that have been with their families have been infected. So Cass County is a perfectly good example of a place where you would want to concentrate a lot of resources because you understood the prevalence of the virus there. So being able to respond quickly, looking at prevalence, uh, being able to go and, do, go and do contact tracing, whether it's the old-fashioned kind of contract tracing. In the, in the old days, the, the public health worker would, would get in his or her horse and buggy, travel to wherever the, the, the smallpox or the, whatever it was, and, and then talk to the people that are there, do examinations, and make the decisions as to who needed to be isolated or quarantined. And nowadays, of course, we can do some of that by telephone. We can do some of it online resources, uh, and Google and others are working on that. Where, Mari, if I've been uh, infected and, and you and I were in the same room within six feet of each other over the last two weeks, uh, Google can say that my cell phone was within six feet of your cell phone. Therefore, it is highly likely that we were close enough and therefore you, Mari, want, might want to take steps or should take steps in order to determine uh, whether or not uh, you've been affected. So those are the kinds of things that this testing will allow us to do much more efficiently. Contract chasing will allow us to do much more efficiently. And then we can tamp down the number of people that uh, are going to suffer. Dr. Myers, I know that uh, on the advice of your physician, you got tested yourself in April. And I'm wondering if you could kind of take us through what the process was like, what the test was like for those of us who, who don't know, who have not been sure. through that experience. Well, first of all, I'm happy to say that my test turned out to be negative. And that's a piece of good news, but it's a point in time piece of good news. It, it is technically possible that I was infected months ago and that the, the virus is no longer uh, in my body. It's also possible that I could be affected a month from now. And that, that test was just that snapshot in, at that moment in time. Uh, I am over 60 years old. Therefore, automatically, I'm in a higher risk uh, category. I also uh, have a, a couple of the uh, chronic conditions that people over 60 often have that uh, puts you at higher risk. So that in combination with some symptoms I had. And, and one of the things that's fascinating uh, from a clinical or from a research standpoint is that the classic symptom triad for COVID-19, a shortness of breath, the uh, fever and the cough, uh, which are present for most patients who become acutely ill, that's not the way necessarily that, that all patients present. We've learned that there are, are a number of other smaller, quantitatively smaller number of people have a number of other symptoms that include uh, symptoms where you are just you have a distortion of your ability to smell and taste that seems to then affect your other cranial nerves as as well the, the cranial nerves are the nerves in the head that take care of things like seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and, and so on and and uh, i happen to uh, have that particular symptom and i just sort of noticed that my goodness i can't smell things like i used to and i'm having these weird distorted smells and that uh, something is going on there and of course uh, when i uh, let my physician know uh, he immediately said yeah dude you got to go and get tested so filled out the form and the the company i use had an online form the lab company had an online form i my doctor had to sign it electronically, thankfully, and send it in. Uh, that form basically asked me a name, address, sort of demographic information, symptoms that, that I was experiencing so that 
there was a research basis because we do want to learn from every patient what the uh, the cause or the need for the test was and, and what the result and correlate those two together. So they asked me a couple questions, verified who I was, and then I, I leaned back and they use a special kind of nasal swab that allows the person doing the test to better able to capture the virus. It goes pretty far back too, by the way. It makes you wince a, a little bit. It's not terribly painful. It's just uncomfortable, but it's only uncomfortable for a few seconds. They, they bring the swab out, they put it in a test tube, they break it off, screw the top on the test tube, you put it in a little plastic bag, they take it to the lab, and then 48 hours later, both my physician and I uh, get an email uh, result, and in my case, uh, it was negative. The test itself took less than 30 seconds to do, and uh, I was very fortunate uh, that I was able to get it scheduled and get it done uh, in the time frame that I did. Fortunately, now, testing capacity is just starting to increase, and so more and more people in my situation are able to get the test. Weeks ago, you couldn't do it because they were saving all the tests just for the people that were hospitalized, which was in and of itself, think about that. I mean, you, you can go to your local CVS and get a strep test, but here is one of the, the most deadly pandemics on the planet. Uh, and we're only gonna test the people that are in the hospital for, for this problem. And of course, I know why they did it that way. They did it that way because there weren't enough testing supplies which is a problem. That was one of the problems that we could have anticipated and prevented. Now it's getting a little bit better. Now it's becoming more available. The next thing will be the antibody tests. The antibody tests are tests that use blood or serum instead of a nasal swab. The blood will be looked at for a specific class of antibodies, IgM and IgG. Those are antibodies that IgM comes sooner, IgG comes later, and it gives you a qualitative and in some cases a quantitative view of whether or not this person has had that virus. And in this case, the SARS-CoV-2, which is the official name of the novel coronavirus. And if I, had, if I get a, an antibody test a, a, the next week or the week after, and, and I've got the spike in IgG and IgM, that's a very high likelihood that I actually uh, had the virus at a previous point in time. And I can use that information to know that I may have immunity. There's more research being done today to determine whether that's actually the case, but it's a pretty good sign. Although there are false positives, and depending on which test you get, the, the false positives and false negatives could be a problem, but it, it's a pretty good indication. There's a concept that's uh, being considered a lot of other places called an immunity passport. What that means is that people who have immunity can be somehow identified publicly if necessary, uh, as people who can't, excuse me, who are unlikely to be able to pass the virus along and who therefore can theoretically at least be in, in much more contact with public without fear of uh, either getting it or giving it. In Indiana, if you believe the, uh, the approach taken by the Harvard Global Health Institute, and there are other institutes and, and that do this kind of work as well, Indiana needs to be able to do and should be doing about 10,000 tests per day throughout the state. And we're, right now, we're, we, on a good day, we're 4,500. Uh, and most days, we're in the two to 3,000 range. But we need to get up to about a capacity of 10,000 a day. And then if you do that, you get a, a positive rate that should go down in the neighborhood of about 10% or less. should be single digits. Whereas today, our positive rate hovers in the 18 to 19 to 20% range. That means we're not testing enough people. That means that the test isn't getting around the state quickly enough and that people who ought to be getting it or not getting it. So I What's think- What's the barrier there? Why, why, what do we need to do to get from 4,500 on a good day to 
what actually you're recommending? Like what's the barrier? One is the availability of the test. Another sites that are open for people to go to, to get the test. And I am encouraged by things I'm hearing from friends that are associated with the CVSs and the Walgreens and those places might be expanding their testing capabilities soon. All of the local federally qualified health centers should be open, should be doing tests, and we shouldn't limit it to nine to five because there are people who still work in many of the essential jobs, so we should have hours that reflect that, and there should be availability on the weekends. And I think that we need to expand uh, into the community. I know that they're just starting now to do testing at churches, community centers. This is a global pandemic. It's a public health emergency. It's okay to do things differently. And so the number of sites and the availability of those sites and the timing is important. Secondly, the supplies to do the test. That, that specialized nasopharyngeal swab is still very much in short supply. Only a few companies make it. And uh, I know that they've been working as fast as they can, but we've got to get more companies to make those supplies. The, the CDC suggests very strongly that you need to see a sustained drop in cases. And we just don't have that in Indiana. In fact, yesterday or the day before was the second highest number of cases we've ever reported. I just uh, saw the flash uh, for today's cases, and they're, they're not quite as high, but they're almost as high. We're not seeing a reduction. Indiana cases are going up, and that's not good. That means that more people are getting infected. Those infections are being recognized. And every one of those people that was recognized today or yesterday is now in an environment where it's possible for them to be spreading it to other people, especially since there's this public notion now that things are opening up again. We're going to be able to go to the restaurant, just not we're only 50% full. Well, the virus, one of the things about the virus that people need to remember, the virus does not know what county it is in. The, the virus does not know what state it's in. The virus does not know it's not supposed to cross county borders. It's not supposed to be in restaurants. The virus just doesn't follow those rules. And so those are the kinds of reasons why we need to continue vigilance, social isolation, and get some indication we are improving. In Indiana, we don't have that yet. So all of that's to say that we're, we have not met those conditions. And it's just unbelievable. And as a result, we are, unfortunately, I think, going to be in the situation that we're not going to be able to get our arms around this as quickly as we might have. Lots of great insights, Dr. Myers. Loving having this conversation. And we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about leadership and about what the future holds. So stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. During this unprecedented pandemic, it's conversations like we had with Dr. Woody Myers that reminds us of the importance of agile leaders to help us combat crises like COVID-19. We here at Genesis know that these are difficult times and are doing our part to make it a little easier by responding quickly to the new normal. To learn more about how we can help you and your business, please check out the blogs and resources on Genesis.com, including our rapid response offer, our first ever virtual experience, and more. And most importantly, stay safe and healthy. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe and share and be on the lookout for the next episode of Take a Moment. And we're back with Dr. Myers. Thank you so much for joining us. And like Nate said earlier, for agreeing to come back 
on the hot seat with us. <laughs> oh. I want to follow up with you on some of the leadership principles that we've been talking about leading through crisis. You've mentioned before how you've kind of shifted how you're doing your campaigns and, and the strategies around that, but you're still creating those opportunities for direct engagement, for being able to still stay in the forefront for your constituents. How important is it for leaders to have those direct channels for engagement and for being able to be as honest and transparent as possible, especially when you're leading through a crisis? I've been involved in many different types of crises throughout my uh, career, and uh, each requires a different uh, approach. There's no one way to do it, uh, and it all depends upon the circumstances and the number of people involved and the lethality and on and on and on. So I, I just know that you have to adjust your thinking, adjust your approach to, based upon the facts on the ground, so to speak. I just know in this particular pandemic, it's not always clear, straightforward, what the right answer is. And uh, you've got to communicate that lack of 100% certainty, but at the same time, set a direction and move towards the, the goal in an expeditious way. Uh, and that's a tricky proposition. We truly don't know uh, all of the facts. Uh, we can tell you what we believe. We can tell you what we've learned in previous pandemics. We can tell you uh, what the evidence tells us today and why we are doing what we're doing. But it's, it's not as if everything today is already known. It's not. And so that's back to your question of leadership, uh, helping people to understand your rationale. It's in many ways similar to battle. When you're leading troops into battle, you have to make a calculated decision about you take that hill or that hill, the you use this weapon or that weapon, you send all your guys or some of your guys. Or all of those decisions require training, experience, and judgment. It's the same way uh, in, in the business that I'm in. Uh, it, it requires training, experience, and judgment. And over time, you, you get a sense for how that, those experiences uh, inform, can inform your decision and when they shouldn't inform your decision, when you should do something differently. And it's, uh, it's hard to explain, but it's a real fact that the there's a lot of it that's instinctual. I just know that from the time that I was a little kid, I, the leadership was something I aspired to do. I grew up during the Vietnam War. In fact, my draft number was 238. I remember that very specifically, um, the last year of the draft. And at one point in my, uh, my young life, I thought I wanted to be a captain in the United States Marine Corps and do my part in Vietnam. And I just felt strongly that I had the ability to uh, lead men into battle. And that time it was all men. And that part of me said, that's what I should do. And part of that, that was an example from my, my father was in a World War II and uh, he was in the army and he was a sergeant. And so I had to be in a different branch of the service. I had to be a, a, a level above a sergeant, right? Uh, that's what every kid does uh, that uh, the young man did in those days. They aspired to do just a little bit better than, than dad. But that was one of the earliest pangs I had to become a, a leader. It ultimately evolved from uh, the military to medicine and healthcare. And with respect to crises, I, I, I did all of the normal rotations in medical school and my internship and residency in internal medicine, but decided the places I liked the best were the ICU and the emergency room. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be where the sickest patients were, and I wanted to confront that battle on a regular basis. I wanted to teach medical students, interns, and residents how to fight against that disease uh, at its worst when the patient was doing his or her worst, and how to win that battle, and how to defeat the, the enemy being disease. That's been my whole career. That's what I've always thought about. Now I've translated that 
into uh, to politics. I just want to fight the bad decisions that we make, uh, unfortunately, all the time uh, with respect to what our priorities are, how we spend the taxpayers' dollars, how efficiently we spend them. And I also fight against the labels that sometimes are ascribed to my uh, party. I'm a, I'm a Democrat, but just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you're trying to be what they call us tax and spend liberals. And my experience in business tells me that when, in any big budget, there are always things that you can cut. And there, there are always things that you can become more efficient, do better and save the taxpayers money. And that's what I want to do. I want to get in there and roll my sleeves up and find ways for us to become far more efficient in what we do with our tax dollars, to spend our tax dollars more efficiently and effectively, and then to, to be able to attack new problems with new solutions. If that's a leadership definition, then that's who I am. Dr. Myers, you said that the worst disease in healthcare is fear. I know there's a lot of fear going around in the world right now and for a good cause. However, I'm wondering if there's anything that we can show from the data, from the science, that might be some good news. Is there anything that you're seeing that would give us a sense of optimism, of hope, as there cause to still be cautious but be less afraid? Yes, I think there are a number of things that you can point to. The progress that's being made on treatment, remdesivir, and other drugs that are, are being now explored uh, that have been shown to have antiviral properties. And then there are lots of work being done on drugs similar to those that, that are being effective to increase the, the level of effectiveness. So I'm very encouraged by the research re- with respect to treatment that's going on at an incredible pace. I'm very encouraged that the, the early results on vaccine trials, a lot of companies are working very hard on different approaches to creating a, a vaccine. Now, remember, and I, I caution people all the time, let's just say you actually are so fortunate enough to create a vaccine that works and that doesn't hurt people and helps them. And that's not always the case. Vaccines can, if done improperly, can hurt you. So that's why the research is important. Then you have to find a way, well, how are we going to manufacture it? How many doses can we get out? How are we going to distribute those doses around the world? Who's going to get it first, second, and third, and how much is that going to cost? I mean, those are the problems that will, challenges that will take another year uh, if we don't start thinking about them right now. So the incredible work that's being done to develop a vaccine, the incredible work that's being done to figure out the answers to manufacturing questions, distribution questions, logistics, all of those things are, are happening at a very rapid pace uh, compared to when, the speed at which they normally happen. And I'm, so I'm encouraged. I'm, I'm feeling good about that. And, and so if we can just hold off and, and keep things in check until the treatment and the vaccines arrive, then, then that's a good thing. And that's what we've got to work towards. And so our job is to get, hold the dam, put your fingers in the dam, and so that uh, we get a, a new way to shore it up. That's got to be our goal. So yes, there are some things I am very encouraged about. And the uh, responses that, that you see on television uh, where the, that one patient who makes it through the 55 days in the ICU and there was just one a guy from Indianapolis this morning at, at uh, IU Methodist Hospital that was featured on the, one of the morning shows that was in that category. That, that is a, an exceptionally positive visual for p- folks to see. And you know what it's also going to do? There are some very smart 13, 14-year-old, 15-year-old men and women, young boys and girls who are going to see that and say, you know what, I, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a researcher. I want to do that. I want to make people better. And that's very exciting to me because a lot of folks that kids that didn't have a direction are going to see that and they're going to say to themselves, I can do that. I want to do that. That's a good thing to do. And and that's positive. That's a plus. And so we've got to encourage that. 
help those uh, those kids to move in that direction. We need many more uh, healthcare professionals, not just because my generation is getting older and we're going to need the help, but because we just don't have enough in Indiana. You know, we have what, the largest medical school or the second largest medical school in the country, but but we don't have enough doctors. And that's because too many of our doctors, once they get out of IU uh, medical school, they go somewhere else. We got to keep them here. We got to give them the right incentives to stay. We certainly need more nurses as well, especially in our, our rural areas. So there are a lot of challenges that are along those lines that I, I want to address and I know we can't address. You talk about the positives, which I love because a lot of times out of crises and out of challenges comes opportunities and innovations. You touched upon earlier kind of a vision that you had about Indiana becoming more of the hub for yes. a particular type of yes not only innovation, but also possibly industry. Kind of explain a little bit about that vision that you have and how that would probably help with that, turning that spigot back on to help drive our state's economy. Well, you, you, now you've pressed my on button there because that, <laughs> this is a topic that I really love to talk about. You know, Indiana is so well positioned. We already have a, a, a pharmaceutical base. We've got diagnostic testing uh, companies that do that kind of work, orthopedic device companies. We just need to add more of those kinds of healthcare-related companies to the menu and then focus in on that as our specialty area for Indiana. Think about it. Why should a country as rich as ours have a shortage of something like a mask or, or paper gowns or gloves or nasal swabs, even though they're not Q-tips, nasal swabs? Why should that ever be the case? Indiana has all of these uh, manufacturing uh, facilities that are no longer being used for the purposes they were originally intended. And Indiana is within one day's drive of 80% of the American population. That's, we are literally and figuratively the crossroads of America. And so why don't we use our geographic position? Why don't we use our capabilities already in the biosciences and manufacturing? Put all that together and then designate medical supplies medical devices, medical equipment as our specialty area for the great state of Indiana. I want us to be the number one supplier of all things that are, are related to that set of challenges. I want us to never ever be dependent upon a, another country's uh, willingness to ship us the supplies we need to take care of Hoosiers. I want us to basically say to ourselves, we can create enough supplies in all the categories for the folks here in Indiana, and because we're so good, at, we'll be good at manufacturing them, then we'll make them available to all the other states. And if there are even more, we can supply the other countries as well. We just never should be dependent on anybody else to take care of such a basic need. You know, and, and food and, and health care to me are basic needs. If I'm elected governor, that will be the priority for new manufacturing capabilities. We'll give the tax incentives that are required to bring the companies uh, that are already in that business uh, today in Indiana to a much higher level. There are some companies that could do lots more. They could run additional shifts, they could expand. Let's help them to do that. And then let's uh, encourage companies from other states or other places to do the same. Dr. Meyer is obviously running for governor and let's play a little game of hypothetical. Of course, we're gonna knock on wood. Let's say you do take the governorship what does your first 100 days look like? What are your priorities during that time? And how has that changed if I would have asked you that same question, say, seven months ago, the last time we talked? 
I would have said uh, uh, several months ago, if you'd asked me that question, on day one, we'll do X, X, and Y, and Y, and Z, and Z. Uh, now I'm, I'm going to say we're going to start working on the transition far earlier than that. Indiana's in trouble. Uh, we have a, at least a 20% unemployment rate today. Tax revenues are clearly going to be down. The budget is going to be far more challenging than ever before. Priorities are going to have to be set. Decisions are going to have to be made. And that, those are going to have to get worked on from prior to the, the new administration starting. So one of the things that we are definitely discussing in the campaign, and, and I'm discussing with the leaders around the state, why shouldn't we think about naming some of the people that would help us uh, prior to the election uh, and giving the, the citizens, the voters uh, confidence that we do have great people ready to go and that they have an opportunity to discuss their plans with people around the state before they start on the job, such that when they get to the job, they're ready to push the go button, the move button, the, the get it done button. So a couple of the positions that we are thinking about, the economic development team, the uh, team that uh, will lead the Department of Public Instruction, because remember, this will be the first time that a governor appoints the superintendent of, of public instruction instead of their, that person being voted in. Very clear to me that there's some people out there that could fit those two jobs and, and other jobs today. Uh, very well. Let's get them up and going now so that by day one, we're ready to actually do the things that we are talking about doing in the campaign. In addition to that, I I've, I've said it on the campaign trail that one of the first calls I'll make as governor is to a woman named Mary Barra. Mary Barra is the CEO of General Motors. General Motors has uh, about 6,800 employees, direct employees here in Indiana, and many others that are part of the supply chain and, and that run the cafeteria and do all the other things that you do to need to create those plants. My, my question, what will it take, Mary, to get to 7,800 instead of 6,800? What do we need to do? Because your best customer, everybody in retail, their best customer is the one you already have. Your approach should be, what can we do to keep the customers that we've got I want to make sure that the, the companies that we got here want to stay here. And what, we need to figure out what do we need to do to keep them happy uh, in our state and to continue for them to grow. So that will be one of the first things I do is to take a survey of all of the leading companies in the state uh, and make sure they understand that we want them to thrive and we want them to employ Hoosiers and we want them to continue their operations and expand them if at all possible. Uh, and then. Uh, we've got to attack the, uh, the problems that we talked about earlier, especially the problems of access and public health infrastructure. There's a couple other things that I'm, I'm nervous about with, within healthcare. I, first of all, the cost issues in Indiana. Our costs are well above average. Uh, we've got to find ways to, to create a system whereby we can evaluate prices that are being charged and compare those to prices that are being charged in Medicare and in other states and give people a lot more visibility and flexibility with respect to Hey, come on, guys. Does an appendectomy really need to be four times as much in your hospital as it is this other? Those are the kinds of things that, that we need to work on. And so uh, th there needs to be a, a thorough, formal evaluation of our trauma system and our EMS system in the state. We've got some great EMS providers and great trauma centers, but are they placed where they need to be? What should the state do to make sure that those little pockets that may not have the services that they need are able to get those services? When should we use ambulances? When should we use air transport? Those are the kind of nitty gritty things that you need to do in order to improve your, your trauma care access, your emergency care access. And that's something I know a little bit about 
Uh, and I just think that we want to make sure that everybody has equal access to the miracles that do exist in modern medicine. Why spend all these tax dollars creating these wonderful diagnostic technologies and therapeutic approaches if we can't get them to the people who help pay for them and who need them? And that's what I want to do. Put one and one together to make three. Uh, let, let's get the, the people that know the most about the care together with the people that know most about the transportation, together with people who, who know the most about how to make the systems work better and get them all at the same table and make these changes happen. So that's what I'm excited about, getting to work on all of those issues. And remember now, a, a governor can't do all of these things that wants, that she or he wants to do. I would love to be in every meeting. I'd love to be in every discussion, but I got the most important thing that a governor has to do is to hire the people who can actually be in every meeting, hire the people who will manage each of those discussions. Because if you're governor, you get to spend 10 minutes on one thing and then 10 minutes on another thing and on and on and on. Uh, and then you have to travel the state, listen to people, and that's an exciting part of the job as well. So I've got to make sure that we're hiring terrific people, that we're giving them perfectly clear direction, and that we're giving them the flexibility to achieve the goal, and that we're monitoring whether the goals are being achieved, and that we're not wasting the taxpayers' dollars while we are doing it. I hate wasting money on things that just don't work uh, or things where you can be more efficient. And so we've got to hire people that want to get that done as well. So that's my first negative 100 and positive 100 days uh, in office. Well, Dr. Myers, it sounds like throughout our entire conversation, the common thread is people, human life, and the importance of people, whether it's putting the right people where they need to be at the right time, giving them kind of empowered execution, like you were mentioning before, as you outlined your future for the first 100 days. Beyond that, what is kind of your vision for humanity? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not sure I'm the right guy to ask about humanity, but I can tell you a little bit about what I want for my grandchildren. Why should their generation be saddled with the problems that my generation either created or should fix? Let them figure out new the answers to new problems. Let's us take care of our own stuff that we didn't do right or we could do a lot better. That's what motivates me. Uh, how can we make Indiana a much more delightful, welcoming, more efficient, positive place for, for not just my grandkids, but your kids and then their kids down the road. That's what I think about. Uh, and I just know that by fixing our educational system, uh, making sure that there are more opportunities after high school for, for our kids to get right into either college or the workforce or both, and giving them futures and careers that we get rid of some of the crime that diverts so much energy and attention. Those are the kind of problems that if, if you work on K through 12 education, you work on families, collaboration, jobs, and healthcare, you make a lot of the other stuff that we do to fix the, the mistakes much less necessary. You know, we have a Department of Family and Social Services, a, a, an agency for children that deal with the tragedies of family life gone awry in, in our state. And we spend a lot of time, sometimes we, we do a good job, many times we don't do a good enough job. Those are the kinds of things that just, if we could stop spending money on fixing the problem after it's happened and start spending money on making sure that the problem never occurs, we're better off and my grandkids will be better off. So that's what I want to do is I want to fix a state, move us in the right direction. And then lastly, I want to encourage the next generation of leaders. You know, I'm in the fourth quarter of the game here. Uh, the, the clock is still ticking. Uh, 
Uh, and in the game of life, I feel like I'm a couple touchdowns ahead, right? I, I've got a great family. I've had a great career, but I still want to run the ball. I still want to throw the ball. I'd probably better be better off letting the, the other guys and gals run and, and throw the ball. I, I should coach the team, right? That's what I should be doing in, the, in this latter part of my career. And that's what I want to do for Indiana. I want to coach the team. Well, Dr. Myers, uh, we spoke about seven months ago. We're speaking today. Uh, I hope that we can speak again, maybe seven months from now, where we can call you Governor Myers. That'd be great. So well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Best of luck to you thank and you. Uh, to Stacy. I hope you uh, stay safe, stay well, and thank you so much for taking a moment with us. I've enjoyed it, uh, and you guys stay safe as well. Thank you so much.